So while people are coming back from the break, I'm just going to uh, get started with some introductions. Those who are still in the hall can hear us. I've already introduced uh, Dr. Melanie Thompson, and Michael Sag is uh, in an Uber on his way back from somewhere. So he's going to be joining us shortly. Um, so just take a moment to introduce those who haven't been introduced thus far this afternoon. Our first is Dr. Ron Mitsuyasu. You all know Ron, I'm sure, being a Los Angeles native here. He has had over 25 years of experience in HIV clinical trials research and patient care and formerly was uh, the group chair of the NCI-funded AIDS Malignancy Consortium and the AMC and was the director of the State of California UCLA Collaborative Center for HIV and AIDS Research in Los Angeles here. His research interests have largely been focused on clinical trials of cytokines, immune-based therapies, biological response modifiers, vaccines, and gene therapies for HIV and HIV-related malignancies. So welcome back to Ron. Our next panelist is Dr. Douglas Richmond. He's one of my colleagues from University of California, San Diego, currently an active emeritus professor, distinguished professor of pathology and medicine. He formerly held the Florence Seeley Riford Chair in AIDS Research until going active emeritus and is the director of the UC San Diego HIV Institute and the co-director of the San Diego Center for AIDS Research and is actively maintaining his research laboratory with research focuses on primarily viruses. You'll all know and recognize Dr. Richmond from his contributions to viral latency and evolution and uh, HIV reservoir and drug resistance. And next is Dr. Schooley, who, in the interest of disclosure, is my husband. But Dr. Schooley is is an active emeritus professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at UC San Diego School of Medicine. And he has uh, an extensive research career as a clinical virologist and clinical investigator and translational investigator, formerly leading the divisions of infectious diseases at the University of uh, Colorado in Denver and then here at UCSD until his until he went to active emeritus and has led the Colorado Center for AIDS Research Virology Core Laboratory and was a former director and chair of the NIH, NIAID, AIDS Clinical Trials Group Network, um, preceded uh, a lot. Preceding that, he was actively involved in many areas of research, but most recently has worked on, in addition to HIV, hepatitis C, more recently coronaviruses and the UC UC San Diego campus's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And he just stepped down as the editor-in-chief for clinical infectious diseases. And then lastly, Dr. Jerome Zach, distinguished professor and department chair and co-director of the UCLA AIDS Institute, associate director of the Eli and Edith Broad Center of Regenerative Medicine and Stem Cell Research of the UCLA AIDS Institute, is a professor of microbiology, immunology, and molecular genetics 
and has a, had a distinguished career in research related to pathogenic processes of HIV infection, using a variety of uh, mouse models to study HIV-induced pathogenesis, investigating latency mechanisms in therapeutic approaches, and developing novel in vitro culture systems and molecular analysis of reverse transcription defects in non-dividing lymphocytes, and lastly, hematopoietic uh, differentiation of human embryonic stem cells in an effort to manipulate these to study the immune system. So a very distinguished panel. Um, As you'll probably notice from the panel, many of us, including myself, were present for the very beginning of the AIDS pandemic globally and in the United States. And we thought this would be a great panel to start with a discussion with key insights about the 40 years of the HIV pandemic. Um, I was going to do a little bit of um, introduction, but I'm going to make that much briefer than I thought I was going to. But just to highlight for those of you who weren't around in 1981, at least not practicing medicine, for us, that's when the war against HIV began with the first recognition here in our beloved Los Angeles of men who had sex with men and were developing an unusual um, panoply of pneumocystis pneumonia, clinical manifestations of disease, followed very quickly by the recognition of clusters of Kaposi's sarcoma, and then um, also leading into a number of other reports that rapidly followed about unexplained immunodeficiencies, opportunistic infections, and then leading to um, what we now know as HIV. The point to be made here is while the war began in the United States against HIV, it didn't, the pandemic actually didn't begin in 1981. It began much earlier than that in in elegant epidemiologic and molecular epidemiologic studies in what we think of now as Cameroon and the Congo, where the first jump from chimpanzees to man of a virus that became to be known as the human immunodeficiency virus began. Um, In 1984, the clinical prognosis for persons with AIDS was about uh, six months to two years, depending on the initial clinical presentation, and was almost 100% fatal disease then. The natural history many of us have seen in textbooks over the years were characterized by a variety, mostly a variety of opportunistic complications of immunodeficiency. And it wasn't until we began tracking these with a formal definition that we recognized the number of cases of what became known as AIDS, the deaths and the prevalence of this pandemic um, made itself clear in U.S. Um, statistics. And then I'll finish my introduction with just a few pictures of things that evolved relatively quickly in the history of mankind, but the shifting tide of HIV and AIDS when we recognized that it wasn't just us in the U.S. that were having problems. This was a global pandemic. We were seeing cases that people had not previously recognized in other parts of the world, particularly in the resource-poor South in sub-Saharan Africa. And it wasn't until the onset of 
a really spectacular influx of funding for treatment, prevention, and care that resulted in some of the advances that have led to where we are today with the pandemic. And I will just stop there and uh, start off our distinguished panel with some questions that I prepared. And uh, maybe those of you who worked clinically can help us out, um, beginning with telling the rest of us about some of your first experiences encountering a person with HIV in your, in your clinical experience. Maybe the first patient you saw and what struck you about that patient. So why don't I start with, I'm going to start with the one woman on the panel, Melanie. <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Melanie? The, the one Southerner on the panel as well, I think. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey. Alabama, man. It's not fair. Well, there you go. Okay. You've been gone so long. <laughs> so um, I was in medical school, and it was 1982, and I was on a rotation in pediatrics at Grady Hospital, and my patient was a young man. I think he was just about to age out of pediatrics, but he was an adolescent young black man who had been losing weight dramatically, having fevers. Nobody knew what was wrong with him. He'd been back and forth to the hospital multiple times. And he, um, it became apparent to me that this was a young gay man. And he was incredibly closeted. And his family didn't know that he was gay. He never told me that he was gay, but, but I knew. And it turned out, of course, that he had AIDS. He had mycobacterium avium. Um, he uh, was, of course, shocked to get a diagnosis of AIDS, but even worse was the potential for stigma. So he left the hospital without telling anybody, without telling family. And, you know, he, and, and ultimately died. And I was so moved by that um, as much by the helplessness of not really being able to do much to help this young man, other than throw a bunch of antibiotics at him. <clears throat> and, um, but really about the social justice part of it, the, the kind of stigma, the kind of pain that he was going through. And that really stuck with me. And I, I think it came back with, with me and played a, an important part of my wanting to take care of people with HIV because it's not just a single disease, it's a societal disease. And, and actually that young man is still in my practice today in other incarnations because this, this is the profile of people we are seeing in Atlanta right now who are still dying of AIDS. Thank you. And Dr. Schooley, why don't you give us some of your thoughts? You know, the uh, first uh, MMWR that you um, showed us uh, appeared the week I finished my fellowship. And uh, I had been working on 
uh, opportunistic infections in transplant patients. And um, it was strange to see pneumocystis in people that otherwise uh, had no apparent reason to have that. And uh, what struck me the most was that originally, uh, initially, uh, how um, much people underestimated the impact this disease was going to have on the next 40 years. Um, the um, uh, as this unfolded, it became clear to me that we had seen patients who had this in Boston for a year or so. People have been wasting and uh, had uh, thrush, uh, lymphadenopathy, and so uh, we had missed it uh, he- here in the U.S. for a couple of years already when it was first uh, defined just a handful of cases in L.A. Um, the following year, um, I wrote my first uh, grant application to study what ultimately um, evolved into um, uh, what we now know as HIV infection. And um, the um, I wanted to look at T-cell regulation. And uh, the review came back um, saying the science was really very interesting and it should be funded, but uh, we're not going to fund it in Boston because there'll never be enough cases there to study it. Uh, uh, the cases are in New York and in San Francisco, but Boston really will not uh, have enough cases to study. Well, how wrong that was. And um, as things evolved, um, people that um, had been living in Boston, uh, very much like Melanie's, but weren't um, known to us, began to appear uh, in all the hospitals in town. And um, uh, for me, it was both a uh, scientifically very exciting time, but also it was an eye-opening time. I had grown up in Alabama, and if you ask me, how many gay men there were in Alabama when I left there to, to go to colleges. I bet there maybe 10, 20. Um, and so uh, what this did was make clear to me that there was a whole community of people who were suddenly um, struggling uh, with a disease that uh, didn't exist, uh, at least to any of our knowledge, a couple of years ago. And it just caused a major societal change, having um, a group that had been uh, uh, stigmatized, having to come forward and ask for help to a community of physicians, many of whom were very conservative and really weren't that enthusiastic about providing them care. We had people at MGH who didn't want to see patients, um, cardiac surgeon who said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to operate on them because what, what, what would happen to me if I got infected in my family? And, uh, there were people in San Francisco the same way. And, uh, in some ways, by default, uh, infectious disease specialists who used to be um, one-time um, arbiters of which cephalosporin somebody went on in the ICU became primary care doctors because it's hard for people to find primary care doctors who would take them on longitudinally, like Melanie said. Um, and we moved from being an almost exclusively inpatient uh, practice to one that uh, began to do outpatient uh, practice and longitudinal care. So it uh, was a, a time that uh, so many things were changing at once. It was very hard to um, grapple with um, when you think about medicines being something that changes over the over the decades. This was all changing in, over a period of months, and um, patients that um, uh, that uh, for Boston were radical um, would show up from New York. Uh, Boston's very staid and boring. Um, I remember a patient that uh, David Relman and I shared. David is a professor at Stanford. If you know David, he's a very um, 
uh, funny guy, but he's, he's, uh, he was very conservative. His father was the editor of the New England journal of medicine. And, uh, he presented a case that he had seen, uh, as a fellow to us on rounds one morning, he said, um, so the patient's down in the emergency room and he's got thrush, he's got pneumocystis and, uh, every four hours he takes the mattress off the gurney and faces it toward Mecca and he prays and his name is Durf Bellevue. And, um, I said, that's a strange name. He said, well, that's Fred spelled backward. He goes to Bellevue hospital and he's in New York. That's not really his name. I don't know what his name is. He wouldn't tell me. So I said, well, what, what's his history? He said, well, I called Bellevue and got some resident at the hospital there and asked him about this guy. And he said, you're going to have to be more specific. We have so many like that, uh, to give you an idea about, uh, how out of it we were in Boston with what was going on in these other cities where the epidemic really led. Um, uh, we were, um, uh, it took a, took a while for the disease to catch up to us, um, in Boston and for us to get up uh, to, to snuff, but I've talked enough. I think it's, uh, I don't, I can't remember a time in, um, my life at least where things changed so radically over an 18 month period of time. So, um, Dr. Richmond, how about you tell us a little bit about your first patient? Right. Well, in retrospect, the first patients I saw were in the late seventies. Um, we just had an infectious disease clinic. There was no such thing as an HIV clinic at the time. And I remember about three or four, uh, young men who in retrospect were gay, um, who uh, presented with lymphadenopathy, some had wasting, um, and they they all had FUOs. And, I, you know, I remember doing workups. I remember a couple of them. We got lymph node biopsies, and we did all of the serologic and culture tests that one does to work up an FUO. And um, we never figured out the diagnosis. And... Um, a couple of years later, when Mike Gottlieb and the folks in New York described their cases, it was pretty obvious what they were. And it was interesting. These guys never developed um, up to the, that time a, an opportunistic infection. Um, within a couple months of the uh, descriptions in the June MMWR, we recognized our first two cases. Uh, the first was a... Um, a married um, black teacher of about 60 who um, uh, got salmonella Dublin, but bacteremia and, and died. Uh, salmonella Dublin was a, uh, another epidemic in California because um, Altadena dairies um, uh, sold as a health food, uh, raw milk. And, um, <clears throat> Uh, in retrospect, he was bisexual. And, um, and then the second case was an unusual case that I've never seen since of a man presented with um, a toxoarchitis. And, um, and then they just started coming in in large numbers. Um, in 1978, I had a medical student who was very interested in hepatitis B in gay men and, and he went to two different clinics, the county health uh, uh, STD clinic and a private uh, doctor's uh, gay practice clinic and collected 50 syrup from each of them. 
and he characterized um, as his independent study project uh, the prevalence of antibody and antigen in this cohort. And I saved all the sera. And then um, about four or five years later, when the antibody test came out, it turned out that in 1978, each of these two clinics had 15% HIV seroprevalence in San Diego. Um, but then over the next couple of years, our ID clinic um, had to double and then quadruple, uh, keeping the original ID clinic and the other three became HIV clinics. And it was like a war zone um, in which you knew when a new patient came in, the chances that they'd be dead within six months um, were very high. And, uh, you know, we were having one or two deaths a week. It was very stressful and it was like a war zone. But listening to the talks this afternoon, there was, even though it was stressful, it, I think it's different than what people are going through now with uh, COVID and monkeypox on top of that. Uh, and I was trying to think, what is uh, what was different? I mean, we were really um, quite stressed, and 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 it was very uh, emotionally challenging to oversee the demise without being able to do much. But um, there is something different now, and I, I think it may be a combination of living in COVID, uh, uh, living in. Um, the political, I'm trying to say this diplomatically, the political world we've had over the last uh, half dozen years uh, of an adversarial thing and an anti, you know, when people have to have death threats for being ahead of an IID and stuff like that. Um, it's it's a, uh, the it wasn't a, a burnout. It was just stressful. And I think um, that that's particularly striking uh, to see what uh, people are, have been going through compared to that time. I think one of their observation is that um, <clears throat> the um, the rate of progress in terms of diagnosis, then the appearance of nucleosides, the, con the combinations, and all of that, and the dramatic impacts that they had. Um, even though AZT monotherapy was no good, we saw promise when. Um, a small uh, study, allegedly a phase two study that became registrational. At the time it was stopped, there were 19 deaths in the placebo arm and none in the, the drug arm. And that, um, you know, we've seen an incredible amount of progress and success with the drugs that were talked about this morning. Um, I think things uh, have changed. They've slowed, slowed down and the critical issues are now um, more implementation issues, both in the resource-rich world and LMIC than in discovery, even though we do need a vaccine and a cure and better drugs. Maybe I'll just stop there because I've been talking a lot. <laughs> this is always the danger of this panel is right. we <laughs> love to talk and have a lot of things to talk about. So, Ron, I'm going to give you the last chance to talk about a patient, and then we'll move into some different topics. Yeah, I, I would have to say that I'll never forget my very first patient. Um, I was um, in my uh, early fellowship years in hematology oncology, and I remember distinctly um, being on the consultation service, and we were asked to go see this individual in the ICU who was extremely ill, 
uh, very wasted, um, had a uh, fluid pneumonia, um, and had uh, lesions that the team thought were melanoma. And uh, we went in to see this uh, individual. He was on a ventilator. Um, he had several purplish kinds of lesions. Um, didn't appear to be overly extensive, at least at the beginning. And uh, we were told he had a CMV infection, pneumonia, that um, there really wasn't anything we could treat him with because even gancyclovir didn't appear until about 82, I believe. And this was uh, in 81. And um, as uh, interestingly, as a, as a fellow, uh, even though they had taken biopsies and they were waiting for the skin biopsies to come back, I had actually given grand rounds as a, as a resident about an older fellow who had Kaposi sarcoma. And I said, well, you know, those lesions look kind of like this lesions that appear in older fellows. Uh, and I saw one in Chicago when I was doing my residency, and it turned out to be Kaposi sarcoma. Uh, and, and everyone said, no, that can't be it. And sure enough, that's what it turned out to be. But the reason I couldn't uh, ever forget this fellow is that he had one of the worst progression of his uh, disease that I'd ever seen. It was far worse than uh, any cancer patients that I'd ever seen. He um, uh, desaturated, um, really uh, became unconscious very quickly, from uh, presumably from the CMV. Uh, but it also turned out when they bronched him that he had KS lesions within his lung as well. And then in a matter of days, uh, he literally became covered with KS lesions. Um, I doubt that he had more than, you know, one or two T cells, but I don't recall if we ever checked. <laughs> um, but uh, this fellow died very rapidly. And the reason I can't ever forget him is that he really um, had no family with him. Um, we had to search to find next of kin after he had passed. Um, and when we did find uh, some relatives, um, actually it was from Mississippi, of all places that this fellow came from, um, they really didn't want to come and retrieve his body or see him or have anything to do with him because apparently he had told them that he was gay. And that, I think, more than anything else, is what had turned them off to him. And uh, so he basically went to the coroners, and I think he was buried uh, by the folks in the L.A. County Health Department without, um, uh, without family support. And that, that really, really bothered me a great deal. Um, but then subsequently, you know, we had heard tales from Dr. Gottlieb and others that there were a number of um, uh, gay individuals who were coming down with very serious, uh, very serious uh, opportunistic infections. And, and, um, and then um, since there were, very, unfortunately, very few people in ID and at, at our institution at the time that got interested in in uh, these, uh, this new disease, as Mike thought it was, and as it certainly proved to be. Um, and so I uh, became in involved primarily since I was really the youngest person on the faculty and 
I was assigned to take care of these uh, immune deficient gay individuals with uh, the various tumors and infections that no one else wanted to take care of. Um, uh, and, uh, and then Jerry Groupman, who was one of my mentors at the time, um, uh, helped establish the KS clinic at our institution uh, after talking to Paul Boberdine and, and others in San Francisco. Uh, so that's kind of like my story. Great. Well, I'm going to change tactic here a little bit. We welcome Dr. Sag back to the fold here. Um, I think you've all heard a, a very rich perspective on what it was like at the front lines at the very beginning of the HIV pandemic. I'm going to switch gears and ask uh, Dr. Zach a question. Uh-oh. <laughs> you thought you were going to be left uh, out yeah, here. Yeah, open. <laughs> So, um, as you've all heard, everyone on our panel has been heavily involved at some level in HIV-related research over the decades. So, I'm going to start with you and ask you a question about what you th- what do you think is one of the sort of watershed discoveries about HIV that kind of changed the nature of what you were doing or changed the tide for you of what we were doing in the pandemic? Yeah. So um, can you hear me? Um, I'm a basic scientist, so I have a slightly different perspective on on things. And I think one of the most important um, observations that was made or discoveries that was made is um, what is the actual receptor for the virus? Um, That proved to be really critical for, for, figuring out where the virus is going to go. And I remember I was in graduate school when uh, Robin Weiss's lab in London discovered that CD4 was the receptor. And I kept arguing that it couldn't possibly be. Not that anybody cared what I thought, because I was a graduate student. But but nonetheless, I didn't believe it because the two target cells that we knew were infectable were CD4 T cells and macrophages. And at that time, nobody thought macrophages had CD4. And it actually turns out the, the assays were not sensitive enough to pick up that fact. They have tenfold less than CD4 T cells, but it didn't make sense to me how that could be the receptor. But now that we know it's the receptor, there's almost every blood cell type at some point in its differentiation has CD4 in its surface. So in theory, the um, tropism of the virus can be way greater than what we typically think about. Great. And so Mike, I'll give you an opportunity to uh, tell us what you think was a watershed discovery in those early years. Well, for me personally, um, I remember the Washington DC uh, AIDS meeting in 1987 and I went to a talk on, on PCR and it was a pretty powerful technique. And I asked the presenter, well, why don't we use that to quantify the amount of virus? And he says, you can't do it. It's too sensitive. Fast forward about five years, and I was in my office on a June afternoon Thursday. I get a call from um, a guy named Jeff Lifson, who's working at a gene labs in Redwood City, California. And he heard we had a repository, and he described over the phone how he could use quantitative competitive PCR to quantify the amount of virus. And I'm literally writing on a paper towel with a pencil trying to draw out what he did. Said, he said, you have samples? I said, sure. So I ran down the hall to my freezer room. I knew all the patients, more or less, that were had specimens stored, pulled out representative patients from asymptomatic to advanced AIDS or acute seroconverters and a bunch of negative controls, scrambled them together, numbered them one to 80, 
put them in a FedEx box and send them overnight. Three weeks later, the fax machine, and that shows you how long ago it was, uh, the bell went off and in comes these results. And I had a, a logarithmic graph paper with these columns. And I remember graphing out where these viral load values were from ranging from undetectable to well over 10 million. And it was like, uh, where were you on 9-11? Or in my case, where was I when Kennedy got assassinated? It was just like, oh, my God, this thing worked incredibly well. And I think that was a watershed moment for me. But the notion of having um, the ability to quantify the amount of virus in the bloodstream was a game changer in terms of science, because prior to that, we had to wait months before we could tell if regimen A worked better than regimen B. B. It was a lot like cancer chemotherapy, I guess. And this way we could this way we could tell in a matter of a week or 10 days whether a regimen was working or not. And to me, that was a big leap forward. I think both of these examples, I think, exemplify uh, something that was different about age research. Um, we had a basic science community um, and we had a, a bunch of clinicians in many other areas of medicine for a long time. And they didn't talk to each other. And here we've got two examples of people working on um, receptors on surfaces of cells, thinking about the implications that has for the clinical manifestations of the disease. Where does the cell go? Where does the virus go? What kind of diseases cause? And someone else who thinks about, gee, we can measure the virus. And there's actually somebody who can do that. Uh, and that's the kind of interplay that we had uh, with this disease from the get-go. And it accelerated a lot of the discoveries uh, rather than, as, as Mike said, spending years to see if a, a, this combination regimen worked better than that combination regimen, uh, you could use science and uh, you could use the um, laboratory to get a short circuit to where things needed to go. Uh, a lot of the discoveries that have happened at AIDS have happened because of this crosstalk that uh, uh, has been uh, something that distinguished this field and I think has begun to drive medicine and medical discoveries uh, much more rapidly in other fields because of what was done uh, with AIDS. So, Melanie, let's let you, um, since your career is focused more on clinical investigation, what do you think was a, a watershed discovery clinically about HIV that helped turn the tide for you and your patients? Well, to me, and I, I ran clinical trials uh, beginning with monotherapy DDC and monotherapy DDI, and then we put the two nucleosides together and but still everybody died when protease inhibitors came along it was it was just an amazing phenomenon that all of a sudden people lived they began to thrive and they continued to thrive over time. You know, with other drugs, you would see people feeling better for a little while. And then, then you know, the virus became resistant. It ate up the drugs and, and they didn't continue to work. But to me, in, those, in, in, in the early 1990s, when sequinavir, which was a terrible protease inhibitor, and ritonavir, which was, it's still around, but it's like one of the most terrible drugs, um, but potent. And, and then in Denivir, you know, those three drugs came in quick succession 
and to me changed the clinical course of HIV. And I, I think it really told us that this was a disease that we could control. This could become a, a lifetime, longstanding, controllable disease instead of something that, um, that we actually were defeated by repeatedly. And to me, that was a watershed moment. Anyone else want to weigh in on their watershed moments? Yeah, I um, I was I was uh, fortunate enough to be involved with uh, some of the registrational trials of um, of acyclovir <laughs> and um, and did some of the virology with the people at Burroughs Welcome on that, and so that when they decided that uh, AZT was um, worth looking into a phase two study after the initial uh, phase one case reports uh, in uh, uh, the NCI lab of Sam Broder and Mitch Mitsuya, um, I was asked to um, co-write the protocol and, and, and chair it with uh, Margaret Fischel uh, of the phase uh, two study of, of AZT. And that was um, really a, an opportunity. And um, it uh, obviously showed that an antiviral could have an impact very quickly. Of course, just a couple of case reports from the um, the NCI group were convincing enough, um, especially the case of the uh, famous lawyer who was in a coma and got turned into a um, nasty lawyer, which was returned to baseline. And um, <laughs> there, there's a... Um, we're not supposed to name the names of patients. No, 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 no uh, names. He was a hero for uh, one of our ex-presidents. He was profiled in Angels of America. Yeah, right. So anyway, um, and and when we were designing the study, um, a couple of uh, naysayers uh, were sort of interesting. It's probably worth mentioning. One is a very famous uh, virologist um, who said that uh, it. I, um, I, I want. I decided that I wanted to pursue the possibility that drug resistance could be a problem and was told by uh, him at a, uh, a protocol meeting at the NIH that um, it's inconceivable that the uh, enzyme reverse transcriptase could tolerate mutations. Or it wouldn't work. <laughs> um, but I wrote a grant and submitted it and um, the reviewers um, rejected it because they said it couldn't work, but I had some other funds and um, we were able to identify the development of resistance with the loss of activity of, uh, of AZT. And that um, sort of changed me from being a clinical virologist doing uh, flu and herpes and some um, Ebola to um, my whole career um, ended up being on one virus. Um, I was hoping at one point in my life to uh, actually go back to my original loves, but um, <laughs> At any rate, um, I, I think that uh, having the science and the clinical investigation and people doing it together, uh, as Chip mentioned, um, really, it created a, a whole generation of young investigators. And what was interesting to me is that ID docs and other uh, docs in academic medicine, uh, there was this... Um, pyramid of, of age and everything else, but with 
HIV, um, everybody doing it was on the relative young side. And it, it created a whole cohort of, of active uh, young people uh, who were uh, passionate about what they were doing. And um, there was, it was, a, it was a different culture than the rest of academic medicine. And I think uh, that was, to me, a very exciting thing. You know, I, I think another watershed moment, even though it may not necessarily have been a scientific one, is the fact that early on, I think the uh, gay population particularly uh, were very vocal uh, and they became more vocal as time went on. And it appeared very clear that um, the general public viewed this as a gay disease and therefore not an important disease. And therefore, even uh, the highest leadership in our country, and I won't mention his name, but he didn't just e even say the word for another five years. And, and that sort of, I, I think, allowed all of us that were involved in seeing that this was a very important uh, medical as well as, I think, a scientific question, uh, began to become more vocal ourselves. I think scientists perhaps were not as vocal um, or fervent in their uh, in their politicking as I think they uh, have become, uh, as has the general public. And I think people aren't waiting as long uh, for the media and the general public to take pay attention to these things. And I think that has obviously translated into more rapid progress, I think, as new diseases have, have come about. I, th I think the community uh, involvement has, has been critical and really transformed things, but we see these problems recapitulated with the disenfranchised being disproportionately involved with COVID and monkeypox, which I think um, delays or impairs the public health response because it isn't uh, the important elites who are involved. Uh, um, and um, it's not like that's a brand new thing. That was tuberculosis is obviously a disease of the disenfranchised too. So um, I th think these, you know, uh, who was affected uh, impacts um, the commitment to get involved. We see this with uh, universities and research institutes where all the philanthropic money goes to neuroscience, cardiovascular disease, and cancer because that's where the rich feel threatened, right? <laughs> if, can, if I can pile on to that, I, I think the community was very important, and I don't think a lot of this would have happened were it not for the community. I mean, the community, um, I've, I've often said if if this had been primarily a disease of poor Black people in the South, we wouldn't have seen the progress that we have seen. But the community in New York and San Francisco, predominantly in the beginning, you know, they were some fairly affluent, brilliant white men. I mean, Peter Staley worked on Wall Street. You know, these were bright guys, and they they actually led us 
They were not going to lie down and die. They showed that by lying down in front of the FDA and lying down in St. Patrick's Cathedral. And, you know, they were the ones who actually made the scientists do the work. They made us, they pushed us, and, but they partnered with us. They partnered with the clinical trialists. They designed in part, the clinical trial for ritonavir. You know, it was a partnership that's very different, I think, than the partnerships that we had seen before and where the, the patients were the ones who were really joining in the fight and demanding that we do better, that we be better doctors, better scientists, better people. So this is a question that builds on a lot of what you all have said already, but I'm going to ask it in a little more specific way. Um, You've talked about PCR development as a tool for monitoring a disease, and we've talked about the emergence of drug resistance as something we recognize is important in the treatment of a viral disease, where we hadn't really talked about that. The recognition of receptors and how they interact with the immune system in a way that gives us insights into pathogenesis. What do you think, aside from the obvious individual and public health impact of HIV, are there other ways that HIV changed the world of science, contributed to what we do now in science that we weren't doing before we learned about HIV? Let's let's start with Dr. Zach. Right, I, I had a feeling that you were going to do that. Um, so I'm going to go back to one of the things I was talking about before. We have learned so much more about the immune system in general and development of blood lineage, hematopoiesis, because of HIV disease, right? Focusing on that, um, I know at it, it, the, the CIFAR and the AIDS Institute at UCLA and others as well, anything that's remotely involved with, with the immune system, we fund under an AIDS banner because it's all important for the HIV disease. And HIV disease has been important for our knowledge of the immune system. Um, and that led, I'm maybe going out on a limb here, but the, the new immunotherapies for cancer, none of that would have happened without the background that we learned because of HIV. Yeah, yeah I'll just add to what Jerry said. Um, <clears throat> uh, when there was a need for a vaccine, um, Harold Varmus and, and Tony Fauci um, set up this Baltimore committee. David Baltimore chaired it um, to help accelerate a vaccine. Um, it didn't succeed, of course, but uh, one of the things that, that did come up uh, was um, both the leadership of the, um, the Vaccine Research Center and one of the constant complaints that uh, we were uh, hearing from investigators is they couldn't get their immunology research grants uh, funded because all of the immunology study sections at the NIH um, were mouse immunologists uh, who said you can't do immunology in an outbred system like humans. You can only answer questions using inbred mice and things like that. And what the committee did um, was uh, recommend and, and Harold Varmus set up uh, two study sections, one in the area of vaccines, because we're not interested in vaccinating mice, really, and um, uh, and and one for human immunology, so that, um, in fact, research in these areas could occur. And it turns out 
that the human immunology that, that Jerry mentioned um, has been uh, critical. Uh, understanding the human immunology to uh, cancer therapy, uh, vaccine development, and all these other things. And I think those are all direct consequences of uh, HIV uh, research initiatives. Mike? So I don't think you have to look any further than the COVID epidemic uh, to see the contributions of HIV. It's just like how the space program in the 60s gave us everything from Tang to Wang. Um, The (laughs) HIV epidemic gave us all the tools that we needed to have a truly miraculous response to, to COVID. If you look at HIV, the disease was described in 81. It took two and a half years for the ideologic agent to be described, another year and a half for tests to be licensed, another year and a half after that for the drugs to be developed. We're already six, seven years into that epidemic before you even had that, and we still don't have a vaccine. In COVID, the disease was described in November, December of 2019. By January 2020, the sequence was released. Two days afterwards, a prototypic virus, a vaccine was developed uh, for testing. Uh, Four months after that, the first drugs were approved, remdesivir. um, And then a vaccine was shown to be efficacious within 11 months of the, the description of the sequence. That would have never happened but for, in my opinion, the HIV epidemic science. And I mean, there was other things as well, but certainly that was a driving force. I think another thing that uh, HIV has driven is it's brought uh, a lot more uh, science to resource-limited settings. Mm. Uh, The way uh, NIH used to fund science uh, in resource-limited settings in the old days would be to give a grant to somebody at University of Colorado who would go down and say, I need 50 samples of so-and-so and and make a contract with someone in Peru uh, who was mainly a technician gathering samples. And what we've seen now is... is, um, partnership science with uh, grants going directly to people in places where the disease is affected. And the, um, a lot of the research designed there because it's more relevant to the questions there. And I think it's totally changed the relationship uh, uh, with, um, with scientists in resource limited settings and has provided funds that have had, that have allowed universities there to, to uh, become um important uh, contributors to the society of, um, in many ways uh, in these other countries. Uh, many places, science there is more revered than it is here now. And so I think in a lot of ways, AIDS turned that on its head as well. So, Any other thoughts on that question? Well, I also have to say that I think the organization of clinical trials has improved dramatically um, with the exception of a few um, oncology cooperative groups in the, you know, in in the eighties, they really weren't very much by way of cooperative groups and and large science. You know, basically clinical trial groups that would evaluate and compare treatments in a very rigorous way, and that um, I, I think is one of the benefits that have come out of uh, all of the work that the various AIDS clinical trials groups. Uh, and prevention groups have uh, have have uh, fostered and helped develop. And they also became the infrastructure for COVID clinical trials. Yep. I mean, we could not have done the COVID clinical trials without having the 
HIV infrastructure, the ACTG, the HPTN, the HVTN, all of those infrastructures in place. And, um, you know, I, I tr it's interesting because when patients say, I don't want to take that vaccine, they developed it so fast, you know, and, and it, it's, it's just instructive to go back and try to explain yeah. to patients why it could be developed so fast. And a lot of it circles right around HIV. So it, it probably uh, bears mentioning why this hasn't come up because most of us are adult physicians and meaning we treat adult people with HIV and work in the treatment and basic science side of HIV medicine. But I was struck by the fact that no one mentioned as a watershed moment, the interruption of transmission of HIV from mother to child. And I saw that as a watershed moment in learning that there were other ways we could use our tools, not just to treat people or change the trajectory of the disease, but to actually prevent people from getting infection. And so maybe we should have had Dr. Landovitz up here, even though he's <laughs> a different generation than the rest of us. <laughs> but uh, maybe you can take a microphone for a moment, Rafi, and just mention for yourself and the rest of us how you think HIV has changed the world in the context of some of the work that you've been involved with. You're going to have to come on up here for a moment. <laughs> I don't know. I think for me, um, you know, having um, incredible mentors and people preceding me in HIV science and clinical medicine to look up to um, was inspiring to me. Um, and HIV. Uh, I think really laid plain health disparities in a way that, you know, perhaps had been more underground and not quite in everybody's view as much. And we've of course seen that exacerbated and promulgated forward with COVID and now monkeypox and access and vaccine equity. Um, but all of that stage was set um, and developed through advocacy around HIV. I mean, for me, the watershed, moment that happened during sort of my clinical activity was HPTN 052, where for the first time, this understanding that perhaps many, many people had suspected, but never had confirmed that someone uh, with HIV on treatment and undetectable was non-infectious, full stop, period, fact, science, not debatable um, to their sexual partners was transformative in terms of the stigma that came with a diagnosis of HIV and hopefully was the first and an important step towards reducing stigma still associated with the diagnosis that makes it so hard to talk about and to get people tested and on treatment and on prevention strategies for. The example you brought about pediatric transmission. Is this working? So, so going back to the, um, the pediatric issue, that's another example where advocacy came into play. And it's a little different type of advocacy than we were talking about with the entire um, 
gay community got together. This was three women, right? Elizabeth Glazer and the two Susies, who really just pushed this forward. And um, without their input, it would be years later before any of this would happen. Okay, passing the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there, there are a few comments from our audience. Um, no specific questions, but a lot of people sort of uh, mentioning some of the same concepts that you all have talked about. Um, one of them commenting on how HIV messaging changed from such a negative thing in the beginning to more of a positive thing over the years. And an example our, one of our commoners gave is William Hurt advising people don't die of stupidity. So I think that's a good that's a good lesson for all of us. We don't want to die of stupidity. Um, there's also been this dichotomy of people with HIV infection of innocent people like those with hemophilia and the people who were felt to be um, victims of their own abuse, like people who were in the gay community and had drug use as a risk factor for uh, getting HIV infection and how that um, paralleled some of the thing experiences we saw with HIV. There is one question, and maybe we'll just use that. I know we've touched on this concept a little bit, but um, how your experiences during the HIV pandemic or epidemic, um, how do you think those have flavored your own approach or your own experience with the COVID pandemic and now monkeypox? And are there things you think your experience with HIV has influenced how you approach thinking about COVID-19 and, and the science that we do with it or how we treat people? Mike, you want to start? Yeah, I'll start. And I'll, I'll, I was about to say something else, but this fits in perfectly with the question, and that is not so much compared to COVID or monkeypox, but hepatitis C. And one thing that HIV has that virtually no other disease but for maybe uh, end-stage renal disease is a program of the Ryan White Care Act. So if you look at, if you take care of HIV patients like we do, um, we have these incredible resources at our disposal that help us provide not ideal, but damn close to ideal care for a lot of our patients, especially when you compare them to people who don't have access to Ryan White care. It's a great equalizer of a lot of health disparities. And so I, when I started taking care of hepatitis C patients, it was in full relief because I would go, well, where's a social worker to help me with this? Well, there is no social worker. Where, where are the programs uh, to help cover the gap in cost of care? Well, there are none. And what about the people who are uninsured? Well, you have to apply for the compassionate use, and that's all you have, and there's no ADAP. Um, and it just, the, the Brian White Care Act has been such a great equalizer in showing us how medicine can, and in my opinion, should be practiced, and how can we create a Ryan White Care Act for all patients we did the math at least 12 years ago, and it's $2,000 per patient per year. That's about one day in the hospital. 
And if we did that for everyone, I think uh, health outcomes would be dramatically improved. We, that's a huge lesson. Well, I think I'm going to start with some concluding remarks this evening and uh, just to make a couple of points before we finish. Um, I think what you've heard this afternoon is a lot of experience over 40 years of HIV-related research and HIV-related care. And I think what you can also say is while we have excellent treatments now and the tide has been completely turned in terms of our toolbox for prevention and our ability to treat people living with HIV, I don't think we're finished yet. We have still have 38 million people on the planet living with HIV. That dwarfs what we've seen with the coronavirus pandemic and or the coronavirus pandemic is dwarfed by those numbers. Um, we still have work to do to optimize our treatments, to reduce the costs of those cares, of the treat, treatment that we provide. We need new drug development for those people who can't use the treatment we have. And we need to address that those social justice issues, the inequity of care issues that Mike just brought up. They still exist for people living with HIV. It's not just other things in our healthcare system. And we talked a little bit about hepatitis C and other communicable complications of HIV, but tuberculosis continues to be one of those orphan diseases. And one of the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic is that we're now seeing a resurgence all over the globe where TB is endemic of new cases of tuberculosis and drug-resistant tuberculosis because we took our eye off the prize and we diverted resources yet again against something that's been a pandemic for 150 years. Um, we do have a lot of tools for prevention. We have universal testing and treatment programs. Treatment is prevention. Um, we don't yet have a vaccine. We're continuing to do research and cure but I think the, the worst part of the HIV pandemic and one of the lessons from the coronavirus and the monkeypox pandemics we're in, experiencing now is that we need to continue the war on complacency. And I don't remember where this quote came from, but it was applicable to HIV. And I think it's applicable to a lot of infectious diseases. We see our political attention get diverted frequently in our country and over the globe and we still need that level of commitment to consolidate the gains that we've made against HIV as well as the gains that we've made against coronaviruses. And we need to not give in to the loss of interest in continuing to improve the quality and expanding treatment efforts and prevention efforts for HIV. And we will continue to have an impact on other diseases if we continue that level of interest and commitment to the war against HIV. So I think we're finishing pretty much right on time. And I'm going to end this evening by thanking everyone for all of your attention. I think we've heard a, a large number of really spectacular talks today and heard some very cogent discussion by our panelists about their experiences and their perspectives on 40 years of HIV. So I think this is a great way to end our program and thank everyone for your attention. 
I don't know if there are little housekeeping things I need to cover, but I'm sure you'll put them up on the slides uh, at the mo at the end here. So again, uh, there you go. Instructions for completing evaluations. And uh, I'm going to stop there and thank everyone for your participation and especially you all for uh, persevering to the end and for your attention this afternoon.